Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. So we learned on Monday that Solomon built the temple, the most beautiful building ever to sit upon the face of the earth. David had wanted to build a temple for God, but God had told David, no, I'm sorry, David, I can't allow you to do that, but I'm going to build a house for you. And with that, God made a covenant with David that one of David's own offspring, one of his own flesh, would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. But David just couldn't let go of that idea of building a temple for God. In fact, David designed it, David financed it, David hired staff and builders to build it. He did everything except put one stone on top of another. And then he directed Solomon to do the work. And sure enough, Solomon did. And we read part of the dedication of the temple on Monday. Solomon did a lot of other things too. And now I'm going to put in at 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built these two buildings, that is, the temple of the Lord and his royal palace, King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and pine and gold that he wanted. Hiram was the supplier for these two massive building projects. But when Hiram went from Tyre to see the towns that Solomon had given him, he was not pleased with them at all. He said, What kind of towns are these you've given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, that is, the worthless land, a name they have to this very day. Now, Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. 120 talents of gold. Holy smokes. That's about four and a half tons of gold. Now, here's the account of the forced laborers King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Did you catch that? Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to do all of this building work to build the temple, his palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and three massive fortifications at Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now, when we travel to Israel in the footsteps of Jesus, we visit either Hatzor or Megiddo, the fortified places that Solomon built to defend the Via Maris and the King's Highway and the linking roads that connect them. If you're coming from the north, south on the Via Maris, you have to pass by Hotsor, north of the Sea of Galilee, about, oh, maybe a half hour drive, and then on through the Jezreel Valley through a narrow pass at Megiddo. Now, if we turn to the book of Revelation, Megiddo is the site of the Battle of Har Megiddo, or 
Armageddon. And Gezer was another fortress on the coastal plain. So Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire. He killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Remember when Solomon became king? The very first thing he did was marry Pharaoh's daughter and solidify that alliance with Pharaoh, thus controlling the economy of the ancient world, the food production center in Egypt, the land routes up the Via Maris and King's Highway to Damascus, and with Hiram, King of Tyre, the maritime routes. So he built up Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Todmor in the desert within his land, as well as all its store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout the territory, he ruled. Massive building projects, all using forced labor. Now, all the people left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these people were not Israelites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate. Remember, at the Exodus, the Israelites leave Egypt. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Then they cross the Jordan River and begin the conquest of the land of Canaan. And God told them, don't leave a living soul alive. When Joshua led the battle at Jericho, they killed every living thing in it. And that's what they were to do by orders from God. But honestly, the Israelites didn't have the stomach for it and they failed in that task. Now we have the descendants of those people. They become forced labor, slave labor to this very day, the day of first Kings. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men. His government officials, his officers, his captains, the commanders of his chariots, the charioteers. They were also the chief officials in charge of Solomon's projects. 550 officials supervising the men who did the work. So Solomon had forced labor and slave labor. He did not enslave the Israelites, but he did conscript them for forced labor. Now, after Pharaoh's daughter had come up from the city of David to the palace Solomon had built for her, so she had her own palace, he constructed the supporting terraces. Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath in Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea. So Solomon is not only in partnership with Hiram, king of Tyre, sending ships out into the Mediterranean trade routes, he also builds ships on the Red Sea that will sail south over to the Orient. Hiram sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve in the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, 16 tons of gold, which they delivered 
to King Solomon. We hear about the wealth of King Solomon. Well, you see where it's coming from. The trade activity on the routes that Solomon controlled. Now Solomon was a famous man. And you can only imagine if the temple was the most beautiful building ever to sit on the face of the earth until that time, Solomon's palace was twice the size of the temple and twice as magnificent. Never mind Pharaoh's daughter's personal palace. Oh my, he was quite the character. And I'll bet every woman in the entire Near East, royal women, queens and princesses, all had their eye on Solomon. Oh yes, Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. But as we'll learn, he has ultimately 700 wives and 300 concubines. So word got out about this famous man. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. The queen of Sheba. Archaeological evidence suggests that Sheba is identified with the mercantile kingdom that flourished in southwest Arabia. It profited from all that sea trade of India and East Africa. So she was a very wealthy queen herself, and she wanted to meet King Solomon. So, we arrange now for the world's greatest date. She came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. <laughs> she sat demurely, blinking her eyes, and she said to Solomon, You are a very handsome very wealthy, very wise man. You know everything about everything. You have often wondered, why is the sky blue? Well, here they are at a magnificent banquet, and she's questioning him, and he's answering her questions. And he said, the sky is blue because, and he went on with his explanation, and she said, well, I'll, how about that? You know, something else I've wondered. I've watched milkweed plants. Solomon was an expert in biology and botany. And I've seen the little tiny caterpillars eat those plants. And then they form a little cocoon. And out of the cocoon comes a butterfly. Now that has amazed me. Solomon, how does that work? How does that little worm, that little caterpillar, become a beautiful butterfly? How is it metamorphosized into a butterfly? And Solomon said, you know, I've studied that myself very carefully. And he answered her questions. 
She talked about all she had on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. You think the Queen of Sheba might be playing Solomon here? <laughs> when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She stood in amazement at this magnificent man, handsome, wise, rich beyond belief. And she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. <laughs> and indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. Oh, how happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Oh, she is laying it on really heavily. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave King Solomon 120 talents of gold, four and a half tons a nice dinner gift, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as the Queen of Sheba from Arabia gave to King Solomon. Now, parenthetically, Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of almig wood and precious stones. And the king used the algum wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace. And to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almig wood had never been imported or seen since that day. And then we read. Oh, and we have to read between the lines here. Read the gaps. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. And then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. After that magnificent state dinner, after smoothing Solomon, stroking his ego, Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired. <laughs> I remember back in the 60s, a TV program called The Dating Game. Three bachelors would be behind a screen, and a woman would interview them and choose uh, which bachelor that she preferred. She couldn't see them, but she'd ask questions. And I remember one of the questions. A woman said, Candidate number two, what would you say to end the perfect date? And without hesitation, candidate number two said, good morning. <laughs> oh, the audience roared with laughter. It reminds me of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Now you think I might be exaggerating, but 
during the 1980s, when persecutions were going on uh, among Jews all throughout the world in the Middle East and Near East, a Jew, anyone born of a Jewish mother, has a right to citizenship in Israel. All you have to do is show up. Show up at the airport in Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion Airport, go to the office, bring the evidence of your Jewishness, that is, your birth certificate, your uh, certificate of circumcision, and other documents, and you will be made a citizen that day. It's called the right of return. And every Jew in the world has that right. Just show up. Well, during a time of famine in Ethiopia, a group of black Ethiopians showed up in Israel and claimed citizenship. Now, wait a minute. These are black Africans. But how did they support their citizenship? They claimed to be descendants of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And the Israeli courts upheld that decision. I remember traveling to Israel in the 90s, and many of the Ethiopian Jews, the black African Ethiopian Jews, were working on archaeological sites, projects sponsored by the government to support people uh, who had yet to settle fully into Israeli culture. I like to call this the greatest date in the world, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. But get this, we only learn half of it with this story. If we continue with 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents of gold. 25 tons of gold every year in his personal checkbook. This was not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. Imagine having a checkbook that fat. 25 tons of gold every year. Now, King Solomon was quite flamboyant. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 becas of gold went into each shield. Well, you can't use a golden shield for much of anything. Gold is a soft metal. They're ceremonial shields. 600 becas of gold went into each shield, and he also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. And the king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Oh, that was another palace that he had, up there with his buddy Hiram, king of Tyre. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Why, I bet God, seated on his throne in heaven, looked down with envy at Solomon's throne. 
all King Solomon's goblets were gold. And all the household articles in the palace of forests of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver. Because silver, well, it was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram, king of Tyre. And once every three years, it returned. This, these are the ships that sailed south on the Red Sea over into the Orient. And every three years, they returned carrying gold and silver and ivory, and get this, apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. When we travel to Israel and visit Megiddo, the fortress on the narrow pass, going into the Jezreel Valley if you're traveling north, stables are among the archaeological remains at Megiddo. Stables for Solomon's horses. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. And Solomon's horses, 12,000 of them, they were not just ordinary horses. They were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew and they imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Well, if you had a, a Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, that would be nothing compared to this chariot and horse. And they also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. He became a horse trader. He knew his horses for sure. Well, Solomon did all this. Now, if you turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, I believe. Let me have a look. Deuteronomy 17. Turning the pages here. Here we go. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is God speaking through the voice of Moses. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. So God didn't want a king in Israel. God appointed judges in Israel. But the people wanted a king. So he gave in and he gave them a king. King Saul, a total failure as a king, replaced by David, chosen by God himself. And David is the great king of Israel. When David dies, Solomon becomes king. Now here are the rules for the king. Chapter 17, verse 16 of Deuteronomy. 
The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Well, isn't that what Solomon did? 12,000 horses? Egyptian-bred horses? And he married Pharaoh's daughter, plus 700 wives and 300 concubines. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. He, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests who are Levites. It's be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or the left. And if he does this, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. There are the regulations for the kingship. Huh. Solomon's doing just the opposite to the extreme. And listen to 1 Kings chapter 11. He must not take many wives, we read. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And sure enough, his wives led him astray. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I could never understand why anyone would want two women telling him what to do, never mind 700. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, who required human sacrifice in his worship. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And get this. On a hill east of Jerusalem, that would be the Mount of Olives, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. On the Mount of Olives, only 500 yards from the temple itself, he built temples, high places, for Chemosh and Molech, where human sacrifice was offered. Well, how did, how did God feel about this? Chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him not once, but twice. And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. 
I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of your father David, this would break David's heart. For his sake, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Well, I'll bet you never thought the story of Solomon ended like that. Solomon will die and his son Rehoboam will come to the throne. And we'll see what happens to Rehoboam on Friday. But my goodness, you know people say the, the wisdom of Solomon and he had wisdom. The riches of Solomon, he had riches. But in the end, I think, we had Saul, David, and Solomon. David is by far the greatest of those three who ruled over united monarchy. But when Solomon dies, civil war breaks out. The 10 northern tribes break off and become the northern kingdom of Israel with their capital at Samaria. The southern tribe of Judah is the only tribe in the south with its capital at Jerusalem and the temple. The Levites, tribe number 11, are the priests. They live scattered throughout the territory in 48 Levitical towns, not grouped together as a tribe. So in the end, I think of all those kings, 39 kings of Israel and Judah, 19 in the north, 20 in the south. Of all those kings, Solomon is the greatest failure of them all. He inherited from David an extraordinary opportunity and he squandered it on his own selfish, self-centered, egotistical desires. I know that will shock some of you, but that is a fact. I'll be back with you on Friday. Meanwhile, ponder Solomon. And don't forget, check out our new website, logosbiblestudy.com. 22 university-level courses teaching through the Bible, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation, including the Deuterocanonical books. And for $19.95 a month, it's open access to everything. And a featured course each academic quarter, starting with Genesis. And I'll be working once again through the entire Bible in the featured courses and having Saturday morning discussion sections, two hours with you talking about the readings for that week. Oh, it's going to be a great adventure together. Join me at LogosBibleStudy.com. Thank you. Bye-bye now, and I'll see you on Friday. <music>